When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Crimson flames tied through my ears, rolling high in mighty traps. Pounce with fire on flaming roads, using ideas as my maps. We'll meet on edges soon, said I, proud neath heated brow. Ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Half-wrecked prejudice leaped forth, ripped down all hate, I screamed. Lies that life is black and white, spoke from my skull, I dreamed. Romantic facts of musketeers, foundationed deep somehow. Ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about my back pages from 1964's Another Side of Bob Dylan is fellow Bobcat Tom J.J. Wood. Hi, Tom. Hey, great to be here, Rob. It's great to have you on the show. Now, you are current. You are in Egg Harbor, New Jersey. Is that right? That's right. South Jersey. That's a, yeah, we're two South Jersey boys here. That's kind of amazing. I've been lucky enough to talk to people all over the world, but you're practically right in my backyard. <laughs> yep, love it, South Jersey. All right. So, uh, of course, since you're new to the show, I have to ask you before we get to the song in question, like, what is your secret origin in, in, in terms of becoming a Dylan fan? Yeah, sure thing. So, um, as people may be able to tell, um, my voice gives it away that I'm not originally from South Jersey. Um, I'm originally from the UK, and uh, there's a UK band, very big in the mid-90s, um, Oasis. Now, I know over here in the States, they had, um, you know, a couple of big songs. I think everybody knows Wonderwall. Um, sure. I can't over-exaggerate how massive they were back home. I mean, they were absolutely ginormous um, in the mid-'90s, which puts me right around middle school age. And so I got swept up in it all and became a massive Oasis fan. But um, what everyone will tell you, back home, when they were massive um, in the mid-'90s, all that would come up is how much they sounded like the Beatles and how much they wanted to be the Beatles. And I don't think that the members of the band objected to that comparison. But that really kind of stemmed for me, uh, you know, a massive musical discovery. I got my dad's copy of Sgt. Pepper out and just was blown away. It was unlike anything I'd heard. But that in turn led me to start getting into Simon and Garfunkel, um, Motown stuff, the Rolling Stones, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then my 15th birthday, I went out, got some birthday money and got Bob Dylan's greatest hits. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and since then, that really has been a, a tidal wave of obsession. You know, that Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits then led to getting uh, Blonde on Blonde and then just jumping right in the deep end. And we've just been going full steam ahead ever since. Um, so it really <laughs> started with Oasis. They kind of got me into some 60s stuff. And of course, you know, you can't get into 60s stuff without coming up to Dylan. And it's just been it's just been a love affair ever since. <laughs> that's well that's great it's a good good for the gallagher brothers that they <laughs> helped you find your way to to bob dylan um so like have you seen him live yeah i've been able to see him four times um i ha- strangely i've lived in the states 10 years i've never seen him in the united states uh, i saw him a few times back home in the uk and then my wife and i we went to college in australia so i got to see him in sydney wow. australia and that was pretty cool i think the sydney uh, the sydney gig would be my favorite when was this 
That would have been, uh, we were, I believe, engaged at the time. So that would put about 11 years ago. So sort of 2008, uh, 2007, 2008. Oh, okay. Wow. So you enjoyed the shows? Oh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. I think the um, the band, it was so strong on the times that I saw him. And the way that they completely reinvent the Dylan catalog is really something to behold. That's fantastic. That's really cool. That's, that's great. Um, so why did you want to talk about uh, my back pages? Of all the songs you could have could have picked, why this one? Well, you know, I'm pretty new to discovering the podcast. It was actually back in November. Um, I sort of discovered the podcast and started listening right from the get-go, right from episode one and kind of, you know, been catching up ever since. And um, you asked a question um, of guests. Back in the day, it was a question you would ask people is, what phase of Dylan or what period of Dylan would you like to see revisited? Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> question that, you know, sort of in the early days, you know, you would kind of, uh, you know, ask people as they came on. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I would love to see some more 1964 Dylan. Because it, it, in this time period, I mean, it's just him, the guitar, the harmonica. And, you know, so it's still that pure folk sound, but he's distancing himself from that finger pointing stuff, the protest songs, that whole movement. And so really, you've kind of got this incredible, uh, you know, sort of collection of music that's kind of got that folky kind of sound to it. That style hasn't changed from, you know, the freewheeling times they are changing, but it's got a completely different vibe because he's not trying to, you know, promote a message he's not trying to communicate you know this uh, this big stunt that he's taking in the 60s america but it's just this incredible music and i would love to see more of that i mean it you know i mean it was one album the bridge the gap from the times they are a changing hollis brown masters of war and next thing you know there's subterranean homesick blues and maggie <laughs> and what's in the middle is another side of bob dylan i'd love to have another side of another side of bob dylan i mean <laughs> That single album is is really an interesting, you know, bridge from one very distinct genre of music to another. Fascinating stuff. Interesting. I have mentioned on previous episodes that while I love the songs on Another Side, uh, and I love this song, My Back Pages, um, I have I have an issue with the arrangements. Uh, this album is famously the album that he recorded all in one night. Uh, which is amazing when you think about it, how some albums take months, if not years, uh, to get created. Uh, Sergeant Peppers, I think they recorded that. It took them like, what, like six months to make or something like yeah, that? Inches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hours, and, 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 and here Dylan created an entire album in one night, which is extraordinary. But I also feel that yeah. the, the, the tunes are just so kind of slow and and meandering that I find that most of my favorite versions of these songs are either covers by somebody else, which is pretty unusual, or other versions he's done down the line uh, at some other point. And so while I admire the songs themselves, I find that these, I hear a later version, I go, oh, that's the one I really like. Now, this song, though, is interesting because I think if you can... Just, and it's probably a foolish thing to even try and do this. But I would argue that if there is one thing, one theme that you can boil, if you boiled all of Bob Dylan's mission statements over the years, over 50 years now or 60 years almost of music down into one statement, it's, it would be this song. The idea and the refrain of I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. The idea of constant reinvention. Yeah, that's uh, and, you know, and and that's something that, and I think reinvention sometimes, even when things are going really well, you're sort of forcing yourself to just 
reinvent yourself. I mean, for, to, to, to borrow a phrase from another song, he not busy being born is busy dying. Right. This, this refrain that, which he ends every verse with this, with this, um, I was so much older than him, younger than him. Now to me, that is Dylan boiled down to everything, anything else, strip everything else away. It's that it's this idea of constantly changing who you are. And that's why I think this song is so meaningful in his catalog. Even if this particular version, I don't like love as much as some other things. It, it's so important to me in, in the history of his songwriting. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I also think that this is what sets Dylan apart from many of his peers from that 60s group. I mean, his stuff, I mean, has been strong right up until his latest stuff. I mean, of course, he's doing the Sinatra stuff right now, and that has mixed response. But his original work, right clear through Tempest, has been has been something of worth and something of value. He hasn't uh, peaked and then dramatically valued in you know in his musical expression. He's continually putting out worthwhile material. Exactly like you said, that reinvention it just keeps coming. Dylan just keeps delivering the goods, and I think that sets him apart from any of his peers. That's one of the reasons I really appreciate him as an artist. Yeah, I mean, this apparently uh, the original name for this song was "Ancient Memories," which is to me very instructive. Mm. Of, of that, that was the original title. Yeah. And yeah, this this song really is this mix of, of course, again, the sound is is similar to what he was doing on his previous records, but the 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 imagery, the the, the sort of psychedelic imagery is already set in place. I mean, everyone tends to think of, as you just mentioned, bringing it all back home as the beginning of that with Subterranean Homesick Blues and Maggie's Farm. But no, that all really starts here. I mean, this record has, um, you know, Chimes at Midnight and My Back Pages and Spanish Harlem Incident, things like that. And so the song continues on. He says, Girls' faces form the forward path from phony jealousy to memorizing politics of ancient history, Mm. flung down by corpse evangelists, unthought of, though, somehow. Ah, but I was so much younger then. I was older then. I'm younger than that now. And then he says, a self-ordained professor's tongue too serious to fool, spouted out that liberty is just equality in school. Equality, I spoke the word as if a wedding vow. Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. And I mean, this is as much as Dylan is going after the, the, the people from his past. He's really going after himself more than anything else, which I think is what helps keep this song from being so nasty, as opposed to, say, something like Positively Fourth Street or even on this same record, Ballad of Plain D, which is so definitely aimed at other people. This one is a little more self-lacerating. Right. It's, it's self-depreciating. But at the same time, he's not exactly vulnerable in the song. He's not sort of opening, he's really just sort of pointing out the flaws in his perspectives, which is so fascinating because I don't think the things that he was angry about, you know, prior to this album are things that he would denounce and say, I, you know, I don't believe that anymore. Right, but right, his, right. His place in the movement, you know, his position in this is, is kind of where he seems to be uncomfortable and wanting to reassess and wanting to withdraw completely. And, you know, I, th- I think the, the partner song to this is, is definitely It Ain't Me, Babe, which is, uh, you know, very thinly veiled you know, sort of like, hey, I'm not your guy, everybody. Right. No, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to lead you to freedom. But whereas that song seems to be, uh, you, you know, hey, everybody following me, you need to stop and go home. This song seems to be addressing the people that he's followed. So it ain't me, babe, is, hey, you guys following me, you need to rethink this. And hey, you guys that are followed, yeah, I'm wised up to you. I'm now onto what's going on and I'm not playing this game anymore. 
So it really is sort of like that two sides of that one coin of I'm I'm not playing this game anymore. I'm I'm done with this way of thinking. I'm I'm onto something new. Yeah, I mean, right. It's not as though he is sort of you know. I mean, again, the previous songs he was talking about the racial equality and and civil rights and things like that. And it's not like he's against those things, but he's just saying that make turning them into buzzwords or or making the presenting some of these issues as so black and white is not what he wants to do anymore. And I don't even think he's necessarily saying, uh, you know, people that are in the folk scene are necessarily like they're wrong. It's just, that's just not for him anymore. Yeah. This is not what he wants to do. He wants the freedom to explore something else. And of course, you know, that wasn't uh, necessarily what some people wanted to hear uh, at this point in 1964, but he's, he's, this album I'd say is relatively subtle about presenting those ideas, it's when he gets the electric backing and the next record, then it becomes so much more. And of course, Newport Folk Festival and all that stuff, it becomes impossible to ignore. Uh, I mean, I don't, I didn't, I didn't have any, I, I did some research, but I wasn't able to find whether people at the time rejected this record, like whether the folk crowd didn't like this record. I assume that they did. Uh, because again, it has some of his most famous songs on, it, but I don't know if this one at the time was recognized as, the big step away as it is seen as it seems in retrospect. Yeah, I, I don't believe I, I understand what you're saying in terms of the research. I don't think there's much to kind of indicate, but I think that the the fact that he kind of did this album and then was like, okay, we're going to make a real big jump now. And then next thing you know, you know, he's plugged in at Newport and bringing it all back home's coming out. I think that that really was a, a real statement of, okay, I'm distancing myself from this. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm moving on from this. And uh, a theory I read years ago, and I, it's just conjecture. I, there's no way to confirm any of this. But there was a, a, pro, a proposed theory that uh, Dylan was so freaked out by the JFK assassination that he, the, the idea of if they can get the president, they can definitely get me. And if I'm being held up as the voice of the generation, I'm the one that's supposed to be leading the charge. Like, am I next on the list? And so, the, you know, the, the theory that I heard, and this was years ago, I read this in a book, I can't remember what biography it was, but this idea of, okay, I need to reevaluate in light of the JFK assassination. I've never heard that. I mean, it yeah. makes sense, certainly. I mean, I can, I, I'm not old enough to have lived through that, but I can only imagine how terrifying that's got to be that, yeah, if they can kill a president, who can't they kill? Right. Know? And, and yeah. this, and this is an, this is an era long before bodyguards necessarily and stuff like that so i mean you know dylan was available probably to anybody if really wanted to commit violence on him he was he was at these folk clubs you could probably get to him if you tried hard enough that yeah that would be pretty terrifying yeah and you know i mean again you know you and i certainly aren't gonna be able to figure it out you know aside here but the the time frame does fit that proposal that idea you know i mean you look at when times the era changing was you know finished recording you know kennedy was assassinated and then you know, next thing, Dylan, you know, sort of then stopped recording finger-pointing songs in his words and started doing, you know, Another Side of Bob Dylan and, and on and on it goes. So, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. It's folklore, but it's, uh, it is what it is. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, and as you say, we will never know, obviously. Uh, <laughs> the song, the final two verses, the songs, he goes on, he says, In a soldier's stance, I aimed my hand at the mongrel dogs who teach, fearing not that I'd become my enemy in the instant that I preach. There, there, it's right on the line there. My pathway led by confusion boats, mutiny from stern to bow. Ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. And then he wraps up with, Yes, my guard stood hard when abstract threats too noble to neglect deceived me into thinking I had something to protect, good and bad. I define these terms quite clear, no doubt, somehow. 
Uh, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. And one of the things that I think you have to appreciate about Dylan as a singer, and of course, you know, we've already gone on and on and on about is he a good singer? And there's lots of people who say he isn't. Just the verbal dexterity you have to have to sing some of these lines is pretty remarkable because I've I've noticed that myself when I'm doing these shows and I'm quoting the lines. It's hard for me to just read the lines just, you know, and not mess up. I mean, a line like, yes, my guard stood hard when abstract threats. That's not the way normal people talk. That's hard to say. I can't imagine trying to sing it. Right. And, you know, I mean, it, it's me. I mean, we've talked about, you know, there being covers from this album. But with this song specifically, I mean, the way that Dylan is able to really kind of drive this song. I mean, it is really a song that I, I think is filled with passion and filled with, you know, conviction about this song. So when you kind of flip it, like you say, you know, I mean, the way of singing it to say the birds version, you know, that punch is lost. Uh, you know, I mean, e- even even the Ramones version of this song, which is, you know, somewhat fascinating and weird at the same time. It, it's it's it doesn't pack that punch. that I think that Dylan's able to get with just him and acoustic guitar and just, you know, say, you know, singing these lyrics as as, uh, you know, with, with as deep a conviction and deeper belief as I think that he is. Absolutely. I did not. I did not know there was a Ramones version of the song. Yeah, it's it's on Spotify. It's fascinating, but it's it's interesting. But you can tell they're singing someone else's song. Wow, that is uh, wow, that okay. That is an unexpected <laughs> cover. I did not know that that was a thing. Um, yeah, speaking. Speaking of uh, covers, uh, I mean, of course, there's multiple versions of the song. He's recorded it. We'll we'll get into a moment about the the live versions. But the one I wanted to talk about specifically is, and I think, again, I think it's instructive about how this song fits into the Dylan canon, is this song was sung at the 30th anniversary concert, which, again, I've talked on many episodes that I was at. But this this song was sung by probably the biggest all-star lineup you're ever going to get in one song. Uh, this song contains yeah. six ver- this yeah there's six verses and each verse was sung by a different singer and so the final and it's the the final song uh, before uh, the, as sort of the big group sing along and so the 30th anniversary version features Roger McGuinn, Tom Petty, Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Dylan, and George Harrison, which is unreal. <laughs> Uh, to hear these six guys sing this song together. And again, I first of all, I think it's a very curious choice that that's the yeah. song they choose to wrap up on. Of all the songs, of all the hundreds of songs to pick from, they sing this one. I also think it's very interesting and almost very sweet in a way that uh, in terms of who sings what verse, you would think that because this this concert was about Bob Dylan and celebrating Bob Dylan, he would sing the last verse, but he doesn't. He right. sings the he sings the penultimate verse, and he gives the last verse to Harrison. Now, of course, mm-hmm. it could be that the fifth verse is simply Dylan's favorite, and that's the one that he wanted, or that he wanted his friend George to be the one to rev up the song, which, if if, if true, is an incredibly sweet gesture. Oh yeah, I agree completely. And you know, I I do appreciate that version of the song. I think that it's it's really well done. I think the the people that he was able to get. I mean, you listed off the people that are part of this song. I mean, there are very very few other people that could get an ensemble like that. I mean, oh, that, good that lord, really, yeah. 
something remarkable. But also, it's interesting that that is a song that was chosen. And I, I always think that when Dylan is given a chance to sing what song gets chosen from his incredible catalog, why that one was chosen, that would be a fascinating answer to get. What is it about that song that was wanted to be shared at that time? I, I'd love to hear an answer about that. I mean, I guess I never will, but that would be fascinating as to what about that song piqued the interest enough to get these guys together to sing that one. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a particularly great version of the song. Uh, there is, there's a great Neil Young guitar solo. I'm not big on guitar solos, but I actually really like that. And it is just fun hearing those six voices singing the song together. I mean, you're just like unreal. And there's actually, uh, it, it's sort of funny. If you ever watch the video of the performance, there's a little detail, which is sort of funny, which suggests about how loose this rehearsal was. Because I think when they get to the third verse, I'm trying to remember, I think Clapton sings the third verse, but there's a point where I think they think Dylan is supposed to sing that verse. And you see it on stage. You'll see Clapton. He's a he's a couple of steps back from Dylan. He looks at Dylan. Dylan gives him a shrug of the shoulder, which sort of says, "No, no, you go ahead." And Clapton has to run up to the microphone and sing his verse. So it's clearly that's great. Yeah, little tidbits like that when you kind of got the band just working together. That's fantastic stuff. I like that. Yeah, I I, I couldn't have noticed that. It's just sort of like that's how loose these guys are. They're just like, "No, no, you go ahead and do it." And then uh, in terms of uh, Curious Placement, this song uh, appeared on Greatest Hits Volume 2, which was released in 1971, which is sort of interesting because this song was not remotely a hit in any way. And so I wonder if uh, it's because of the Birds cover, maybe because more people knew about it thanks to the Birds that they thought it was on there. Or maybe it was simply Dylan likes the song a lot and wanted to put it on the record because, again, it's not it was not a hit. Uh, so it was it was put there for other reasons other than the fact that it was a hit single. Yeah, I, and I was I was surprised when I kind of looked it up, you know, because it is a strong song, but it didn't get any airtime live until the seventies. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because there seems to be a little bit of discrepancy about that. Because again, I was looking it up on on Wikipedia, and it says that this song was not performed live until 1988. And yet, when you go to BobDylan.com and you look at the concerts, yeah. it was played, it was it started being, according to BobDylan.com, it started being played on July 4th, 1978, and it's been played right. 260 times since then. Now, they list about 10 performances in, in England of this song, and Wikipedia makes no listing of that. And I'm like, well, Wikipedia can be wrong. How did they get that? And then I noticed that Clinton Halen, in his book, says that the song was not played until 1988. So there seems to be some, and I'm assuming that's where Wikipedia got it from, is from the Clinton Halen book. So I'm not sure who's right. It's BobDylan.com or is it Clinton Halen? Now, of course, odds are you would say, well, I would think that BobDylan.com, which is, of course, done by Sony Music, would be the ones that get it right. But Sony Music has made lots of mistakes when it comes to Bob Dylan's history. So I don't necessarily think they have the the patent on being right about this stuff either so i i'm not sure this song so the song either sat dormant as a live uh, song for until 78 or 88 either way that's a long time dylan certainly was content to leave it on the record so yeah so i went to the bobdylan.com and saw there the 78 um performances so went on youtube to see if there was a bootleg on there and there was a couple and strangely it was played with a full band that sounded uh, a lot like the birds version hmm all right, that's it. Well, uh, all right, then Clinton Halen must be wrong, in the sense that's interesting. I have to go. I'll have to go look that up. That's interesting because yeah, I'm. I mean, again, they have these set lists 
where it's it lists where they where it was played and it says it started he started playing it in July of 1978 and he played through September and October and November and then pretty much just that year and then not again until 1988 so there's just this one year where he was playing it a lot and then supposedly not again so no and it is a shame because I think this is a, a really strong song I think the the poetry of this song I think the the nuances of it are, are really fascinating it's such a strong song you know I mean it made it to the greatest hits too like you said but you know it really is surprising that this one isn't held up in the same way that a lot of those songs at the time were yeah yeah, like I said, it's it's uh, again. I it, it's a song that you know. I certainly I don't put it on a lot of my sort of uh, set lists when I make little uh, playlists on iTunes or whatever. But it is something that I admire about Dylan and that his his complete almost obsession with trying something different and forcing himself into new situations to grow. I mean, I'm very risk averse. I always sort of have been, and that's something that I admire in Bob. And that, like I said, even when something is working. Uh, I think he is he's just got that restless hungry spirit and he's got to move on. I mean, I think judging by the reaction to the Jack Frost records, I mean, I think he could have been making them the rest of his life and people would have been perfectly happy. I mean, I think those records are great, but no, he's forcing himself into doing something else. And he did the Sinatra thing, which, as you said, has not been met with the total universal acclaim. But I don't think he cares about that. It's he follows his muse where it goes. And and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But that's part of, I think, what keeps him young, forever young, if I really want to be corny about it, is that ability to just take the best of your past and bring that with you and leave the rest behind. And that this song is that distilled down to six verses. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the ways that, uh, you know, trying to explain the reaction of the folk crowd to Dylan going electric, you know, sort of as I was talking to other music fans that weren't necessarily into Dylan, you know, back in the day, the best way I could find to explain that transition was if you could imagine Eminem back when he was big, Eminem joining a boy band. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the the emotional upheaval that all these you know massive rap fans would have that this you know this edgy you know sort of shining star beacon of the you know the preferred type of music has abandoned them to join a boy band. You know, you start to get an idea of what the, that emotion would be. You know, the anger that came. And there's Dylan. I, I don't care. I'm going to keep going. And then. Even crazier, when he peaks with Blonde Arm and Blonde, he decides just to go back to almost acoustic with John Wesley Harding. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, he, so, yeah, I mean, he could have cranked out Blonde on Blonde songs if he wanted to, again, for the rest of his life. And people would have loved that. But no, he had to go and do something else. That's just, that's just who the guy is. And so... Uh, yeah, this song is uh, it, it's it's that summed up, and it said it's a really beautiful song, and it's 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 something that I hope to, you know, I, we, I don't know. I wish I took more to heart. I will say I'm I I'm very as I just said I'm very risk averse. Uh, sometimes I will force myself into situations that are are scary, and and usually those are something I grow from. Uh, sometimes, I mean, doing these doing these podcasts is that to a certain extent. Sometimes I'm feel like I'm not ready to talk to certain people, but I just force myself to do it because you just got to go and do it. You know, you just got to try. And I like to think that I'm a better, smarter person than I was a couple of years ago. I'm hoping that I'm younger than that now, but uh, you know, I guess that's not for me to judge. But yeah, this song is a good sort of uh, a way to, you know, it's a good north star kind of thing. Oh yeah, I think anybody that went to college can identify with the sentiment of this song. That once upon a time, <laughs> I thought I had it all fixed. You know, <laughs> you know, I, 
I often joke that I must have, you know, forgotten a lot of stuff since I was 16 because back then I knew everything. Um, <laughs> You're right, yeah. <laughs> and this, this song is often in my mind when I think of that, you know, it's, it's that youthful, man, I've got this all figured out, I've got all the answers, and then, you know, you're just like, hold on, what? No, I do not. <laughs> yeah. I have not got this all figured out. Right, and you think about you think about how dumb you realized you were when you were 20. And you think, well, that's what I'm going to think 20 years from now about myself now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Today, having a little figure is going to get reevaluated absolutely. Yeah. So, well, I said, I think that's going to do it for my back pages. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for reaching out. I really appreciate it. As I've said on multiple episodes, I love it when people that are listening to the show that I, I don't know that they're listening, reach out to me and ask to be on the show. That's how I get to talk to new people and get to hear new opinions. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Rob. Well, thank you, Tom. So again, thanks everybody for listening. And of course, if you want to find back episodes of the show, you can subscribe and, and, and find older episodes on Stitcher, on iTunes, or on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. Uh, I would love it if more people left comments on the website. I know that the show doesn't get a lot of comments because I think most of the people that listen to the show, they don't go to the website to listen to it. So the website's not really in front of them. But I love getting comments from people. So if you ever think to drop by firewaterpodcast.com and leave me a comment about these episodes, I would love to, to hear hear from you uh of course and we're always talking bob dylan over on twitter which is at pod underscore dylan so thanks everyone for listening and until the next episode uh, take it easy bye crimson flames tied through my ears rolling high and mighty traps pounced with fire on flaming roads Using ideas as my maps We'll meet on edges Soon said I Proud neath heated brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Half-racked prejudice leaped forth, ripped down all hate, I screamed. Lies that life is black and white, spoke for my skull, I dreamed. Romantic facts of musketeers, foundationed deep somehow. But I was so much older then I'm younger than that now